Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses World with the World War II gave us writing for Godot and Oklahoma. Without the arts, we are diminished. We had the kind of creative freedom. I was, I was on television as a child, and then I had I was in Cotty's Happy Hour. She leaned across to me and she said, "One day, you know, you'll be doing that." Mind-boggling. They were even lined with purple leather. Uh, I went to the ABC and auditioned. I was so fit at the end of that, you could have ended me in the Melbourne Cup. I And I still firmly believe that great work can be made in small places. If nobody's going to respect your talent, you've got to respect it. I hope I've been entertaining, that's all. Well, that's very kind of you, Peter. But you are a friend. <laughs> and as are you. Yeah, it's a date. <laughs> it's a date. Peter Ford is one of Australia's preeminent entertainment reporters. For over 30 years, he's been breaking the news and sharing insight on the people and product that grace an array of stages. Whether they be real stars or reality stars, legitimate legends or legends in their lunchbox, Hollywood royalty or House of Windsor, red carpet or red face, Pete keeps us informed using his vast sources and impeccable charm. Commencing his career as an office boy with Radio 3UZ in Melbourne, he had a valuable vantage point to observe a world he longed to be part of, and the many personalities that inhabited that world. Forays into producing for radio and then TV at the age of 21, producing Good Morning Australia, then hosted by Kerry-Anne Kennelly and Gordon Elliott, quickly followed. In such experiences, he was beginning to garner terrific insight to celebrity and the shenanigans, shine and schmooze of show business. He rarely gives interviews, but graciously agreed to this conversation for stages, recorded in his studio at Channel 7 in Melbourne. He's a marvel to watch in action, a consummate pro who knows his content, knows his audience, and knows how to share his story. Here's my breaking story with entertainment reporter Peter Ford. Right, okay, so that's. Uh, how close recording. do I need to be? Is this fine? I think so, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's pretty good. Just be, be mindful of that area. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. And no no banging. No banging. No banging. Yeah, so no banging great. policy in this building. <laughs> I think in all buildings That's now right. there's a no banging policy. That's right. Um, Peter Ford, thank you for having me in your studio. Well, thank you. Are you impressed? I'm very impressed. I'm very <laughs> impressed. But it's a bit like The Wizard of Oz, isn't it? The wizard drawing back the curtain. It is. He's just a man. It's pretty basic. Well, I think it was someone's office, which they've made some attempt to soundproof, and they've put some lighting in. But it's a it's a one-man show. Mm. So I walk in here, and I, I obviously do my own makeup. I get dressed myself, um, and I just sit here, and I communicate directly. And the camera's set up permanently. The lighting is on, the filters are on, very important filters. And so I just sit here and then I communicate directly with the people in Sydney in the control rooms. It's pretty, it's simple, but, you know, it works quite effectively. Yeah, it's the nerve centre where you communicate the uh, entertainment news of the day to the world. Well, (laughs) I do, actually. (laughs) Well, I don't know the world. But I guess if you want to, you know, include social media and people can watch things like the morning show online, they can watch most of my reports go up online and... Mm. But no, I think we might be stretching it somewhat to say <laughs> the well, world just, is engrossed. I've, I've just been observing you do a, uh, a radio call with um, Radio in Tasmania. Yes. Um, and which you you cover... look thoroughly bored, I might add. No, I, was... I glanced at you a couple of times, <laughs> seeking, desperately seeking some reaction. And I was fascinated. <laughs> I'm I sure. was fascinated. But no, you covered uh, the news of um, Magda's had a. a an altercation with somebody on Twitter. Um, <laughs> That's Brit- a recurring story <laughs> for most of us. Brittany Higgins has just signed a book deal. Uh, Chappelle Corby was evicted from Dancing with the Stars last night and Prince Philip's funeral. Yeah. So you must spend every minute of the day, do you, having your ear cocked to popular culture and what's happening so that you can be the first to uh, pretty much. talk about yeah, it. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I am better at switching off than I used to be and I, I tend to... Uh, switch off now in the evenings, which I never used to do, and that, that's just not healthy. But uh, I am—you've um, got to be on the case all the time because things happen so quickly, stories break so quickly. Now you can't sit back and and just wait. You, you, you've got to be in the game all the time. I'm lucky also that I have a very broad brief of what people expect from me. Um, as you mentioned, some of those fairly diverse 
mm. topics and subjects there. Uh, but, if, you know, if, any day I could end up sitting here on the morning show talking about, you know, a new tape found of Bethel Merman or do a Lippers brand new recording. So, uh, you know, it's a, I'd like to think what I do is a, a real mixed bag of nostalgia stuff, but also breaking news and, and current hip people. And it's important for me as I get older to work hard to stay current, to know who the interesting people are. And I don't necessarily mean reality TV stars and Instagram influencers. I do try and avoid them. But there are a lot of genuinely talented, young, interesting people out there who I do very happily follow and, and report on. Mm. So you, all of that information is in your head, I guess. And, and there's various platforms that you're talking to, whether it be Tasmanian Radio or... Yeah. Channel 7 audience or, or Kyle and Jackie O, I guess. Yeah. And, and then you just select what you find pertinent to that audience. Totally, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's a certain number of stories on a given day that you think that's kind of universal. You know, any radio station will want me to talk about that because it's unavoidable sometimes. Uh, but you're right, I do have to tailor it. You know, if you're doing Kyle and Jackie O, you're going to do something outrageous and fun. Um, if you're doing Triple M, they want something a bit butch. Or, you know, so if I'm doing 3AW or 2GB, they skew older. Um, so, yeah, I do have to sit there and think, no, that won't work for that show. But there are some things that are kind of everybody wants to hear about. You know, this week, of course, Prince Philip has been in the news. Well, you know, everybody has wanted to talk about that. That's kind of like a, a no-brainer. Yeah, almost a saturation point. Well, some people think so. Yeah, I am kind of over it now. We've had four or five days of it. But um, I, I, I was surprised how people got into it. You know, mm. they really got very emotional about it. I guess it's because he's been there all of, well, unless you're really old, you know, all of our lives. He's been around and present and we've seen him walking a few steps behind the Queen. So, but it still has surprised me the amount of affection and, and the reminiscing that people have wanted to do. Mm, big part of their lives. I must ask, how are the dogs? Oh, my dogs are great. My, my I have two dogs, Lily, um, who's a girl, obviously, and, well, not necessarily, we shouldn't say those things anymore, should we? <laughs> um, Lily is a girl, though, and Herman, who is a boy, and Herman is now, I may contact the Guinness Book of Records. He may be the, well, I don't know, but I may be hoping. But he's 18 now. Wow. And that's old for a pug. Yeah. Very old. And he is deaf and he is blind and he can't walk uh, anymore. But uh, he's happy, you know. And I'm, I feel like I'm staring at my future sometimes when I see him. So uh, I bought a pram for him just recently. Yeah. So I, because he still loves to go out. Uh, he's, he, I'm not joking, he really is still a very, very happy dog and he loves his food still mm. and the whole day just revolves around waiting for food to arrive mm. and he still loves to go out and, and he's so cute, people want to touch him and pat him and stuff So, uh, and he, but he can't walk more than a few steps so I now take him in the pram um, and I literally have become the person I used to laugh at in years <laughs> gone by but you end up doing it, if you've got an animal, you've got a Give him the right Part care the and love. You can't just... I couldn't bear to go out and just leave him on his own. You know, I would hate that. So, no, the dogs are great. Thank you. So, Lily and Herman, do I detect a theme there? Yes. Yeah. Very observant. I knew you should get that. Uh, yes, of course. Lily and Herman from the Munsters. And my previous two dogs, which also were a boy and a girl, were Boris and Natasha. So, um, I think I'll keep the theme going. I, mean, I don't know how many more dog cycles from I've Bullwinkle. got. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. The, the Russian spy. And um, so, I don't know, I, I may go for Dory and Herb next time for number 96. <laughs> These are very obscure references and very old references too. But, um, yeah, I, might, I don't know how many you know more dog cycles I've got left in me, but probably at least one more, I would think. So a lot of television consumption feature in your youth? No, not, no? not at all. I actually don't watch much television at all. Um and less and less, to be honest. I mean, there's some great stuff out there, don't get me wrong. And I do watch it if I have to watch it for work purposes. Like, I have been watching a bit of Dancing with the Stars the last couple of nights. Um, and things come along that do occasionally interest me. But, no, watching TV is not a part of my nightly ritual. I don't even watch the news or A Current Affair or the 7.30 report, unless I know that they are going to be doing a story on something that I feel I need to see. Mm. Uh, it's a bit sad, isn't it? I think a lot of people are like that now. It's just it's not part of the evening's plan unless I decide it's going to be. Yeah, yeah. 
I guess with the, um, the introduction of streaming services, people can choose to watch what they want, when yeah. they want. Well, I do a fair bit of that, and I've got them all. And uh, I certainly during lockdown, which was in Melbourne, of course, went forever, I did do a lot of watching TV during that period because there really was nowhere to go. Um, so I did a lot of Netflix, um, and it's great. I mean, there is some amazing stuff out there, mm. some really edgy stuff, mm. not even necessarily big budget stuff. Uh, and a lot of it goes under the radar. Yeah. You know, I watch some t- things, things, you know, I read the synopsis and think, I'll give that a go. And think, oh my, why hadn't I heard about this show? You know, I, I guess I'm negligent. It's part of my job. I should know <laughs> about these things. But it's very hard to keep up. There is so much product coming out now. Uh, on free-to-wear and the streaming services. Um, and Foxtel, is Foxtel considered a streaming service? Uh, yeah, yeah, they have a streaming or, or a pay TV platform. thing. Yeah. Um, it, it is, honestly, it's very... I, I really, I don't envy the actual TV writers and reviewers who, who do have to watch all that stuff. It just must be so time-consuming, and obviously that's their job, and that's what they get paid for. But mm. uh, I, I don't really like sitting there watching TV unless it's going to really grab me. Well, I must say, um, I must express my thanks for, for doing this conversation. I know you don't do a lot of interviews. I am like the Barbara Streisand of, of Australian media. <laughs> no, I don't do a, a is lot. Is that because you're a shy person? I am. I am partly, I am shy, uh, which, of course, I know the bulk of your audience understand that the, the dichotomy. Is that, yeah, is that the big right. word yes, for the day? Absolutely. Big word for the day, Entertainment dichotomy. reporter, but very yeah, shy. Yeah, the irony of it. Uh, and I also, I am very boring. I am, and I, Sometimes I think, oh my God, people are going to come and, oh, I just touched the table and you told me not yes, to touch the table. The table. That's um, right. I was patting the felt. Is oh, that it is. felt? It's, it's, well, it is or felt now that you've touched it's it. It's felt. <laughs> the velvet, this lovely, lovely, lovely table. Um, no, and I, I'm pretty boring. I always think, oh my God, people, if and I, I get off I'm not suggesting people are, you know, beating a path to my door to do interviews with me. But I'm not a self-promoter. I never have. It's not been part of my thing. And I don't feel I need to do it. I've always had plenty of work. I don't, I'm not a fame seeker. So I don't do publicity in the sense of, you know, at home with Peter Ford, you know, Peter Ford's favourite trinkets, all that stuff. That doesn't interest me. I, I don't want to be recognised when I go out. I have no desire. And I, it's happening a bit more in the last couple of years because I've been on TV now for 35 years. Wow. 35 wow. years I've been on TV. Um, so it's, but it's, a lot of it's under the radar. Yeah. You know, it's mostly on morning TV and daytime TV. So unlike, say, a, you know, a Richard Wilkins or an Angela Bishop who, you know, who are instantly recognisable and they're kind of stars in their own right, mm. uh, I don't have that and I've never sought it and I've never wanted it. What, what was the question again? <laughs> Can I just talk more about myself? You're, are you a shy person? <laughs> oh, yeah, I am a very... <laughs> proving the point. Uh, and I've just never felt I was particularly interesting. That, and I don't want to be the story, basically. Mm. I'm the storyteller. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we met about 30 years ago. Yeah. When you were studying uh, with the entertainment reporting, I think. Yeah, it was pretty on, much um, in the early days. On Radio yeah. 3 ba in Ballarat. Ballarat was one yeah. of my very first ones that I, I got. And um, Launceston, I think, was my first one. And then Ballarat. And then it kind of grew and grew and grew. And, you know, at one point a couple of years ago, I was on, I think, about 74 radio stations across the country. Not all individually. Some of them yeah. were, like, relayed. Right. Um, uh, but you know, it was a big coverage. I lost a lot of it thanks to COVID. Uh, a lot of that, those country towns simply just didn't have the budget anymore. Wow. And very often I was in, depending on what city, I was sponsored by the local cinema chain or, and suddenly they're, they're closed up so they're not sponsoring it. And for a lot of those radio stations, they, they're pretty lean operations mm. and they can't afford to pay somebody to talk for five minutes. So I did lose a big chunk of work during COVID but you know I'm not complaining you know that there's real hard story hardship stories out there and I'm not one of them. So when you're starting your career as an entertainment reporter who is around at the time I is it John Michael Housen on the Mike Walsh show? Yeah I guess John Michael was the high profile one um I, I guess he was really the one, but um, there were other people, obviously, through the years who, who've done it. Uh, and I guess I guess Richard and Angela were probably starting out around about that same time as well. Um, but yeah, John Michael certainly had the name and the reputation. And, and But I was lucky in that I had um, a career before I went into being 
on camera or on air. I was a radio producer and a television producer behind the scenes, and I never had any desire whatsoever to be on. Never crossed my mind. Um, but it was eventually Bert Newton who said, you know, you should be on air. You know, you're amusing, and, you, you know, I think you'd be better on air than you are a producer, which I think was kind of a backhanded <laughs> compliment. <laughs> exactly. But I thought, oh, okay, well, that sounds all right. And, um, I mean, I, I this, is, this is really aging myself. I, I literally uh, sent out cassettes to radio stations saying, uh, you know, this is what I do. And I'm, I'm, as you'll hear when hopefully you'll hear, I'm highly entertaining mm-hmm. and you should have me on your radio station. And slowly but surely, you know, it started. And then once it starts, it kind of builds upon itself, you know, and, and then you end up with a, a lot of work. So it really was starting literally putting in cassettes into envelopes and sending them to, to radio stations. A lot of content at that time, I guess, would be just local. I mean, yeah. how do you get the international stuff? Because that's a time before computers and email. Totally, and, yeah. Oh, yeah. totally. Well, back then it was literally a case of reading the newspapers, making phone calls, hoping press releases would come in, which of course were literally by post. Mm. Um, yeah, it was a very different, and I guess 15 maybe heading towards 20 years ago now when everything started to go online that was a total game changer and I did think you know is this over for me now am I irrelevant and um, I I did wrestle with that for a while but in in fact I think it's only bolstered what I do um, because news is a lot easier to access it's harder to break stories now for me it's um because there's someone else who's going to put it up online. You know, once upon a time, it wouldn't be in the paper till the next day. Now, of course, someone will put it up online immediately. But I guess through the certainly the last 10 years or so, although I still do break stories, um, it's more about commentary and analysis of, of stories that are already out there. So, And I um, probably do it in a different way to anybody else. I kind of stir the pot a bit and I do, I'm not afraid to express an opinion and sometimes it's an unpredictable opinion. You know, I, I cop a lot of stuff on social media that I'm a lefty lovey or I'm a right wing nutter. I get both on any given day. <laughs> uh, so anyway, I'm rambling on and you're right, back in Ballarat 4,000 years ago, that is where we did first meet and now look at us. Yeah, look at us. <laughs> look at what us. What about that? <laughs> Scratching away, <laughs> making a living and still sucking up oxygen. Well, all of the entertainment reporters that, that have come to be in, in that time all have uh, very distinct personas. I mean, you talk about John Michael and various others that are very flamboyant and over yeah. the top and Richard Wilkins sort of old rock star ethic and all yeah. that sort of thing. Your persona, did you think about what you were going to create? Because you come across as more of a, a hard-nosed reporter. Yeah, well, thank you. I, I, I think it's what I think of myself. Mm. Um, I, I, I always think I could be equally working in Canberra. Oh, God knows the, the sordid gossip that's emerging out of Canberra recently. <laughs> I, I would be in heaven. But I am pretty much an old school reporter in that sense. And, and there, you know, people like John Michael, who's a brilliant man, mind you. We've had a falling out, but he's a, a, a brilliant mind. Um, yeah, he was the person I looked to as when I was a kid. And I was so thrilled when we did eventually, you know, become good friends for a long time. Um, yeah, he, he, he was great at it. But I'm different. I'm, I'm different to all of them, and um, maybe that set me apart. But I, I also work at it. You know, I don't... I take it seriously. This is not a hobby for me. Um, I've got to do it well because, A, I'm getting older. B, I, I'm not... They don't have me for sex, sex appeal value on television, <laughs> if they ever did. Um, you know, I've got to deliver, and I charge top dollar I don't work cheap so people expect me to, to live with the goods so I've got to really work at it constantly and I do that and yeah I don't know that anybody else in this country has done it who's had the emphasis on the local scene I mean I do branch out and cover overseas stuff as well if I feel I've got something to offer or say but first and foremost I try and um, focus on the Australian scene sadly and this of interest to your um, your listeners you know I don't get to do to cover a lot of theatre um, which I would love to do but it's to be honest with you in terms of commercial television it's hard to justify because A if you're watching in Perth you don't want to hear about a play that's on in Melbourne Um, 
But the big stuff, obviously, you know, your Hamiltons and the returns of Phantom of the Opera and the upcoming Moulin Rouge, those sort of things you can do to a national TV audience yeah. and they are of interest. Or if you've got a play and it has a big name, household name in it, you know, and that's obviously why producers put big names into shows because they're much easier to sell and promote. But um, public apology to your listeners specifically, I don't get to cover a lot of theatre as much as I love it and I've got great memories as a kid of going to theatre and I don't go as much now, not that anyone has been going much in the last 12 months, but um, I want to get back into it. If anything, the pandemic has made me think, oh, I actually want to go and see more live theatre. You recently posted a very uh, heartfelt tweet on the passing of radio kingmaker John Brennan. Yeah. Um, intimating that he gave you some advice at some stage. Or Had you auditioned for him? Did you want yeah, to Yeah, well, I was actually a, a doing a show. No, I didn't want to be a shock job, but I was doing a show. I'd started doing the reports um, around the country, and I was on 2UE. I was on, on 2UE for 25, 26 years. And um, eventually they gave me a Sunday night show, and I was living in Melbourne. I was flying up to Sydney to do it every Sunday. What, those days there was some you know budgets around to do things now you wouldn't get a taxi docket out of them but uh so <laughs> they don't even have taxi dockets anymore they <laughs> no, e char- charges no not even cab see right. you're yes. more old hat than i am now they have They're cardboard credit cards no not, no, even, not that. even that right. they they send you a thing on your phone right and like a barcode thing to your phone and you show your phone now but i digress so anyway um i was, I was doing this sunday night show and it was for about six months, and it was quite good. I had a show business theme, and it was all right. Um, but eventually I got called in to John Brennan, uh, who was a lovely, lovely man and clever and just knew radio so well. And he said, look, you know, you're okay on air as a host, but you're not great. You're not disastrous, but you're not great. But I, I think if you focus on doing your reports, you could be probably the most in-demand person as a guest on radio in this country. Um, so I think it was a very polite way of yeah. axing my show <laughs> and telling me to get real. Uh, and I took the advice. You know, I took the advice and I focused on that ever since. And, um, you know, I, I don't have any great desires to, to host a show again. Oh, my God, what's oh, that? that? That's an alarm. Oh, that alarm signals. Uh, you're about to go on air, aren't you? I'm going on, ta- on, on the tally, tally. On the tally. Is my makeup look okay? <laughs> you look gorgeous. Will I'm... you please try and be a bit animated when I'm on this I'll, I'll have a big grin. <laughs> All right. Just like... To be continued. Mama Rose. Well, I did tell you that we were recording this episode during a work morning for Peter. He reports daily to a series of radio stations around the country, as well as his regular appearances for Channel 7's The Morning Show with Larry and Kylie. Alarms are set, and he responds to each appointment with charm and an appraisal of the entertainment events making headlines on any particular day. Just now, he was off to chat live with The Morning Show. Well, that live cross was very good, Pete. Oh, thank you for that. Would you please go on Twitter and tell everyone how good it was? Because <laughs> normally I go online and I'll oh, get him off. He's so out of date and he's boring and whatever. So that's the nature of, of putting it out there. Well, you touched on Twitter there in that um, that conversation with the Sunrise program. Not Sunrise, it's the, the, morning, the, show. the morning show where you appear daily, of course. Uh, the the Twitter sphere is a bloodbath, really, isn't it? You've got to be a yeah. gladiator to compete. I yeah, think there, but, um... you do if you are going to put your name to it and you do if you are going to, if you are in any way have a profile and you are going to actively participate in it, then, then yeah, people will come after you and, and it happens repeatedly, it happens to anyone. And, you know, I'm like a kind of a D-grade celebrity and I, I know the stuff that I cop. So I can only imagine what, you know, big name people. And that's why you'll find a lot of people just don't want to have anything to do with it. You know, take, for example, Tracy Grimshaw. Tracy's on Twitter uh, and she tweets very occasionally. I'd be surprised if she tweets more than once or twice a week. Um, But other people just have nothing to do with it because they know it's a very toxic space. Mm. And, you know, these, for the most part, people who do come after you are anonymous. They're vicious. They want a response and, you know, as angry as you get when you do respond, you're giving them exactly what they want. You know, you're exactly what they want. You, 
and I'm great at giving all the advice. I don't take my own advice often, but uh, it's it's a very nasty place, and it's it it can wound you. And we've seen terrible examples of people who have been brought undone by it. Um, you know, I guess the, the probably the highest profile was Charlotte Dawson, mm. who I knew really well. And Charlotte was a very complex woman, um, and Twitter was a bad thing for her. And also, she then decided to become a kind of a warrior to expose the trolls. And I don't know, in, upon reflection, that she was a strong enough person to have taken on that battle. I don't know who is, um, but she certainly wasn't. And even aside from taking on that battle, I think she engaged a lot with people who seemed to want to, you know, get a ride out of her and, and a rise out of her and say horrible things and she got too caught up in it and and she had her own mental health issues and it's not the space you want to be playing in if you do have any kind of mental health issues or you suffer from low self-esteem or anything like that thick skinned you've got to be a bit resilient you've got to be resilient and you've also got to be prepared to just sign off and say no I'm not going to engage and you also got to block I, I block people now very freely I never, for the first few years I was on Twitter I didn't block anybody right. uh, I used to think oh everyone's entitled to their opinion mm. and but now I think no I'm not stopping you having your opinion I just don't want to see it so you know I, I will block people without any any well, I won't block without any reason without any hesitation um, particularly if they are an anonymous person. I don't block simply because someone disagrees with me or someone criticises me. But if someone's going to try and demean me and say something vicious and horrible about me and tell some lie about me, um, then no, you don't have a right to my feed anymore. Of course, the truth is they then open a new account and they come back anyway. So it's kind of a, a no-win situation in many ways. But, yeah, you're right. You've, you've got to be strong to be on Twitter. If I had a kid, I wouldn't be letting him anywhere near Twitter mm-hmm. or social media. You persist on the platform, I imagine, uh, for your profile, for promotion of, of the... Uh, Not so the much no. that. Um, yeah, a bit, a bit of that, you know, to let people know what I'm doing, what station I'm on. But my work's not reliant on that. I'm not told to do it. It's not part of my job. But I do it a bit for that. It is actually quite addictive for someone who is like a news junkie yep. like me. Yep. And I like that quick, fast information and then the update and then the reaction. I mean, you do get that on Twitter. Um, but it, it's the other stuff, the interactions and the arguments that, that is the negative part of it all. But in terms of a, a, a vehicle or a, an asset to have, an accessory to have, in terms of news gathering... It's actually invaluable. But that's the only thing I do. I don't do Facebook. I don't do Instagram. I don't do Snapchat or any of those. Right. Twitter is the only space you'll find me in in, in, in social media. Well, recently you, you tweeted what I imagine is quite an innocent comment. You asked, who is Priyanka Chopra? Yeah. And you incurred the wrath of the world, it seemed. Yeah. Well, me I mean, incident. I actually did know who she was. Right. Um, but I admit I didn't know the full extent of her credits as a Bollywood actress. But I posed the question of what are her credits to be uh, announcing the Academy Award nominations. And um, she saw it and she tweeted back. Uh, she did a whole list of all of her credits as an as a, a actress and as a producer. And they're very, very impressive. It didn't... Uh, I responded to her saying, that's highly impressive. I didn't know that. Thank you for sharing. I still don't think you should be announcing the Academy Award nominations. So she seemed to unleash her 27.2 million followers onto me. And because she responded to me, she didn't have to respond to me. And of course, they have your handle and they decide, how dare you offend our Priyanka? We're going to come after you now. And so you only need 1% of 27.1 million people to say, yeah, I'm going to go after him to suddenly have 270,000 tweets coming your way. Um, it, it was something else. It, it was quite um, shocking. I mean, I wasn't offended by the language or the threats. I'm used to all that. But it was the volume of it, you know, to just, and it ties up your timeline. You can't do anything else. And yeah, then it builds upon itself. And yeah, it was a troubled. The only good thing with these Twitter wars is you know that it'll all be over in 48 hours and they will have moved on to somebody else. 
uh, unless so, you give it more and more energy, which is tempting to do at times. So it's a case of weathering the storm, and and very as much the so. old adage that uh, today's news is yesterday, uh, tomorrow's fish and chip. Paper. Yeah, exactly. Well, I don't know what the equivalent of that would would be in the cyber world, but uh, yeah, you're right. You, and that's what I say to people who are finding themselves in those storms, like Magda is at the moment, is you know just try and try and step away from the computer and don't look for 48 hours. And of course, what you can do is also go into a private mode where unless people are signed up to follow you, mm. they can't get to you, they can't send you a message, that you, you can't read what they're saying. So that's at least one tip to kind of distance yourself somewhat. Yeah. Now, are you a Melbourne boy, Pete? Yeah, absolutely. Born I, here? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Grew up in, um, well, I was born in the Footscray Hospital. Uh, which is now the Western General Hospital, and uh, grew up for the first 10, 11 years um, in Yarraville, which now is a lovely suburb where, you know, good luck finding anything under a million dollars in Yarraville now. But back then, uh, it was a dump. You know, it never, you wouldn't, you never admit you lived there kind of thing. And it was still had the makings of a nice place, which it's now become. And for years there, there used to be a, a theatre called the Sun Theatre. In fact, it, at one stage, there were several cinemas, um, but they used to call them theatres back then. It, there were three of them in, in Yarraville alone. Wow. And, but it was all boarded up and there were broken windows and I don't think it had been open for many years. And as a kid, I used to always think, oh, wouldn't it be great if we had a cinema here in Yarraville and I could walk to it and go to the movies? And, uh, and then, of course, eventually, long after I'd gone, uh, they did open it. And it's now I think it's a multiplex, but they've, they've, they've still kept a lot of the old grandeur of the old Sun Theatre. So, yeah, Yarraville is, is where I grew up and, and went to um, school there. Then eventually we moved to Altona, oh, yeah. which uh, again now has become quite hip and, and pricey. But see, I'm always ahead of my time, you know. <laughs> yes, you are. I am. But the, then Altona, it was, it was better than Yarraville, but it was still a kind of just a sort of average middle-class suburb. And um, then I stayed there living at home with mum and dad until I moved out and got a flat and got into the, the you know, wide world. Was there a fascination with the showbiz as a kid? I mean, oh, you, totally. you, you mentioned you didn't watch much television, but... Oh, then I did. You did. Oh, yeah, God, yeah, I was glued to it. So you'd be aware of, you know, people like Bert and Graham yeah. and... Uh, oh, I loved TV. I, I would sit, my mother would go crazy, you know. So, you know, I was always drawn to um, television and theatre, um, and but also journalism as well. I, I, I used to literally go to the... Um, go to the news agencies on Monday morning when TV Week came out because I wanted to get the first edition as soon as it came out and as soon as they unwrapped the copies. And Thursday, I think it was in the afternoon, there used to be a thing called Listener in TV, which then became TV Scene, I think. And um, again, with all the show business news and gossip, so I wanted to be there for that. And then I even started getting ready to go when Truth came out. And Truth used to come out on a Monday and a Thursday because they very often would have big show business stories on the front page. So, um, yeah, I was always drawn into the, the news game, but centred around the show business world. Was your bedroom plastered with the uh, centrefolds from TV Week? Because remember, no. you used to have the, the posters of stars. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, my posters on my wall were theatre posters. Yeah, I, in those days, I think you could... Um, Next to Her Majesty's Theatre, there was the box office. And, you know, often with the big shows, they'd bring out, all, like, brochures and posters that you were pretty much, I think, free just to take. And I used to have... Remember one I had was Gloria Dawn in Gypsy. Fantastic. How butch is that? <laughs> you know, what other 12-year-old kid has that on his wall? And I had a whole bunch of them. And, yeah, so the fascination was always there. And we... we um, Mum and Dad had no show business bones in their body whatsoever. Uh, no, nothing. But uh, they did take us to my sister and my late sister and I to uh, live theatre a couple of times a year. The big shows, the big okay. commercial shows. Uh, we used to go all the big J.C. Williamson shows. I mean, I can remember as far back as uh, No No Nanette and Irene. I was very young, I might yeah. add. We used to go and see the black and white minstrels. Right. Am I allowed to admit that? Yes, I think you can. We used to go and um, the big. They used to do pantomimes uh they do them at, at the tivoli in melbourne 
And then they started doing quite big ones in other theatres and even in the suburban shopping centres. Um, they'd stage quite lavish pantomimes, not, not sort of El Cheapo things on the centre stage. But yep. see, in Melbourne, some of the, um, the big shopping complexes, Southland and Chadston, actually had um, cinemas. I think they were primarily cinemas, but they could also be used as live theatres. Yep. And they would stage pantomimes there. And, you know, people like Rosie Sturgis were doing pantomimes and John Michael was in one. I saw at Southland, they did Adventure Island live on stage and... So, um, yeah, mum and dad would take me. So that gave me that appreciation for live theatre, even though, as I say, they had nothing to do with it. And then I was also very fortunate that when I was in high school, there was an English literature teacher who decided she was going to take anyone who was interested to see the Melbourne Theatre Company productions. They used to have a Monday, I think it was Monday night, maybe it was Tuesday night, um, youth night. And so the tickets were cheap, obviously. So there'd be a group of us, you know, eight, nine, ten, who would go with her. Probably down at Russell Street. Russell Street Theatre, some at the Athenaeum. Um, And, yeah, I used to see... We didn't go to everything. I guess some of them were too saucy to be taking 14-year-olds to. But uh, we used to go and see a lot of them. So that gave me a real appreciation for um, the live theatre and Australian actors. And, of course, very often Australian works as well. I guess people like Freddie Parslow. And oh, absolutely, Frank Freddie Parslow. Yeah. Oh, Ronnie Ford. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Sheila Florence. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, people who, of course, later I would see and think, oh, I remember seeing them, and I'd see you know Sheila on TV and, and think, oh, I remember her seeing her in a play, and so it was great to have those reference points. And I was very lucky that we had that teacher who would take us to that because that's not the sort of thing that my mum and dad would take me to. But I, I, even as when I was going to those things, I would get the programs, and I've still got hundreds of programs at home. And I'd want to learn about who these actors all were. And, and then that, ex- that was really an extension of when I used to watch television, I used to be obsessed with Batman. and um, All those guest villains. Guest villains. Yeah. And I, that's how I got interested in a lot of these old stars. And, you know, some of them were character actors and some of them, of course, were big name stars. Like, you know, Ethel Merman was, was doing Batman. And that's right. And Vincent Price. Vincent Price, yeah, as Egghead. And, and so each time I'd see it, I'd then go to the library and look up the names of these people and, and learn about who they were and why they were significant. I knew they were significant because they were villains on Batman. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I didn't, for most of them, I didn't know anything about their backstory. So it was a case of, that was like my education came by way of Batman. Who was the big first big star that you met? With that I met? Yes, yes. Well, you know, I was very lucky because one of my first jobs um, long, when I was working as a producer was producing Bert Newton's radio show. And people outside of Melbourne um, maybe don't know, that was like the big radio show in Melbourne. It rated its socks off. I mean, it used to be... Then Darren Hinch came along and sort of took over. But it was a funny show because it was largely based around nostalgia. And we had this amazing book. This is the days when shows had big budgets. We actually had a full-time producer working in Los Angeles just booking guests. And so we would have interviews with all these old stars, you know, Doris Day. And and so we had this amazing book. And also anybody who was in town would be coming in for live interviews with Bert. And what we did, the theatre, the radio station in Melbourne at that time was at 45 Burke Street, the very top of Burke Street. And it actually had a theatre, a radio theatre, where they used to do, still when I was there working, they were doing this thing called radio auditions, uh, which was like a radio version of Idol or something. And people would turn up and and perform and they'd win a competition. People like Helen Reddy, Crocker did it. You know, everyone did it. It was the thing to do because this is, in the early days, it was even predating television. So... um, yeah, um, we'd set up a, a morning tea there with the Windsor next door. We'd bring in our morning tea and the silver service. And so all these guests would come in and be with Bert for an hour in the studio. And so we had everybody come through. You know, I guess you mentioned there Vincent Price. Well, Vincent and Coral came in together. Coral Brown. Yeah, Coral yeah. Brown. And we presented her. Uh, we'd organised this in advance. I, I did it. And uh, I knew she was from Footscray because she went to school with my mother. Why? Really? So, yeah. So I organised through the Footscray Football Club before they became the Western Bulldogs, I think. Oh, look at Miranda Kerr's on TV. She's very gorgeous, isn't she's she? She's beautiful. Yeah. And very rich, too. And <laughs> great, great self-promoter. But so I organised for the Western Bulldogs or Footscray Football Club to, to give us to have a player come in and present her with a Footscray Football Club sweater, jumper. 
and um, she could not have been less interested. But, <laughs> but she pretended for a couple of minutes. And I think she walked off and left the jumper behind when she left. But yeah, that was a chance to you know go downstairs and meet these people and bring them up. And uh, it was the show that everybody wanted to be on. So Vincent and Coral, who I again met, met many years, a couple of times actually, after that. Um, yeah, it was for a, at that time I was 18, 19 years old and uh, I don't think I even fully understood the, the significance of meeting a lot of these mm. people or the significance of, of what these people were and their careers. Yeah, yeah. As a kid going to the MTC and, and seeing live theatre, are you starting to formulate an idea of what you want to do with your life? Career aspirations? Yes and no. I mean, I went through the, you know, oh, I'm going to be an actor. I'm going to audition for NIDA. And, and, but I went off that uh, pretty quickly. Uh, it was always going to be something in the media, I think. I just loved that concept of um, being involved in the news game. Uh, but probably, if anything, I thought I'm going to become a, a writer and I'll, I'll write for a newspaper, uh, which in effect is more or less what happened and, and things sort of spread from there. But uh, there was no real... I wasn't sitting at home at night dreaming of the day when I'll get to do this or get that. It was just more of a gravitation to um, a career area than anything. Celebrity was obviously a fascination. I mean, yeah. I, I believe you used to hang outside 3AW just for a glimpse of Mary Hardy. I did, I yeah. did. And I used to write to her and I, I've got all the autograph books at home still. Um, this is going to make. I'm going to sound like some terrible, deranged stalker. <laughs> not at all. Not um, at all. Because uh, yeah, I, I would always. I, I loved Mary. I thought she was great, and uh, and yeah, I did stand at the front of Three AW a lot, getting autographs from her and guests because she had guests coming in as well. I mean, at this stage, I'm very young. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm like 13 or 14. It must have been far better pursuits I could have been doing than that. But um, And I'd go to the stage doors as well of the theatres when um, people were doing shows and, and get their autographs. And uh, funnily enough, when I was cleaning out my mum's stuff only about 18 months ago after she died, she, uh, she kept all those books and I went through them. And, and I don't know half the people were, to be honest, who'd signed them. But at the time, it was highly significant and highly exciting for me to, to get to meet these people. And I must say, I never once had a bad encounter with anybody nobody was never not gracious and accommodating and and at the very least signed and said thank you i'd hate to have and that's why you know i get very angry when i, I hear stories of people who have had bad experiences because yeah. it can be so wounding for people it can be a big thing for a person to go up to someone else and say you know i love your work and and, I think and what you mean to me. And, yeah. yeah. And how, how could anyone be dismissive of that? I mean, I know there are times sometimes when you press for time and you, sometimes you're not even in the mood, but you, you've just, you've got to be gracious. You've got to be gracious, mm. you know, at the very least. So how do you begin your career? What's your first job out of school? Well, the first job out of school was working, um, a paid job was working at um, Clark Rubber in, uh, <laughs> High, used to be High Point West. I think it's just High Point now. And uh, that was a disaster. And then I went to, because uh, I had to cut the foam rubber. People would come in. I know, this is this was not my on. calling. No, now, <laughs> no, probably I'm going to get some terrible asbestos thing. I'm going to sue Clark Rubber. But, um, yeah, people would come in and say, I need to replace my cushion on my kitchen chair. <laughs> and I want it to be this thick. And I think, oh, oh, okay. yeah. Yeah. And so then I had to try and get with this drill saw thing, try and cut it to their specifications. What was I doing in that shop? I have no idea. Then I got another job at Brashes. That was a little bit more exciting, right on you know. Mr. Yeah, B. right on Mister B, because <laughs> I was, you know, we had the uh, the cassettes still at that stage. Don't think D, I don't think CDs had even come in, and uh, probably even records. Yeah. Um, and so that was a bit more exciting. That was also at High Point West, and uh, then I got a job as a cleaner. Um, that was exciting. I was cleaning offices and toilets. Uh, and then, uh, lo and behold, uh, I got a message via my father that my old um, English teacher from high school had rung out of the blue to my um, mother and father and said, oh, what's Peter doing? And they said, oh, he's cleaning a toilet somewhere at the moment. And uh, the teacher said, oh, I just heard them advertise a job for an office boy at 3UZ and he should apply for it. So I did and got the job and um, 
Yeah, that was that was the, the that was the beginning when I was the office boy at that radio station, and that primarily meant uh, sorting mail. It, the, the, certainly, the first part of the day was about sorting mail, collecting these huge bags from the postal exchange, which was at the bottom of Burke Street. I think it's at the building still. I don't know what it is and then getting on the tram. And if they had a competition on at the radio station, the bags would there'd be two. I could build, sometimes I'd have to do two, two trips because I couldn't yeah. do it. So take them back on the tram and then sort them. And there was, you know, in those days, people wrote fan mail to the big stars who worked at the radio station, you know, like Tony Barber and like Bert and like Don Lane and, and Bob Rogers and Ugly Dave Gray. And, and old school, like John McMahon, was he there then? John McMahon, yeah. yeah. John McMahon was hosting that radio audition show. On that Sundays. I was, yeah, yeah, on Sundays. Yeah. So he was still hovering about. That was kind of his final chapter. But I do remember meeting him on many occasions. Um, and he was a, a, a nice man. Um, but so I'd sort the mail and that literally would take a couple of hours and then actually then deliver the mail to every department and office and person. Um, and then by that time it was almost lunchtime, but, and then in the afternoons there were always odd jobs to be run. And sometimes that, you know, even extended to getting people's lunches and, uh, but I was surprise, surprise, one of those terrible office boys who thought, no, I'm going to learn and I'm going to hang around and I'll, I'll work for free. And so the first time I actually went on air, believe it or not, was doing football comment, well, not commentary, but football around the grounds. I know nothing, nothing, <laughs> literally nothing about, about a, well, it's AFL back yeah. then, I guess. But, uh, and they'd send me to some terrible match somewhere and you had to do the scores like every 15 minutes, you know, oh, Carlton, six points behind and 10 goals and isn't it exciting? And then at the end, I would have to get the final and then like a two-minute commentary on what the game was like. And it was, you know, that was not my calling. But oddly, ironically, that actually was the very first time that I went on air as a football commentator. Oh, there you go. There's a good pub trivia question. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> but I think everybody soon came to the realisation that this was not a good fit. So you then move into producing radio? Yeah, then, um, long story short, Bert Newton's radio show, the producer left very suddenly, uh, and Bert saw me, knew of me, and said, oh, can you help out till I find someone else? And I said, sure, anything you get out of, you know, sorting that mail. So, you know, two weeks became two years, and uh, I was very lucky. I was still quite young at the time to be doing that sort of job. And learnt a lot. What and does that entail? That job? That's oh well, it's primarily guests? being yeah, primarily it is being responsible for the content of the show. Right. Um, a producer would very often also um, have a large say in kind of you know directing the on-air talent. You know, do more of that, do less of that. But with Bert, you're not really going to be doing that. You know, Bert's doing Bert, so it didn't involve so much of that. But there were you know a lot of other side of things. You know, even down to budgeting and stuff that you, that you do on a show like that. Um, and I learnt a lot, a hell of a lot doing that. And I also learnt stuff that has later stood me well in, in terms of being on air and understanding. When I do talk about, I guess it's one of the advantages I have got over some other people is that when I talk about what's going on behind the scenes of TV or what's going on behind the scenes of radio, although it was a long time ago, I've been there and actually do know how it works and the realities of it. So after radio production, you move into TV production? Yeah, right? so yeah. then um, a couple of different stops after uh, uh, Bert went to work with Ernie, went to work in New Zealand, went to work in Adelaide, um, and then eventually I got a job um, producing, a, initially I got the job producing a show they had going called Good Afternoon Australia, which was obviously like a sister program to Good Morning Australia. And then before I started, they decided to axe the show, but they'd signed me up and I was um, moving from Adelaide to Sydney to take up the gig. So they said, well, we're going to have to put you on to Good Morning Australia. We can't get rid of you. Um, we're stuck with you now. So we'll put it, give you on Good Morning Australia. So I was a producer on that show for um, over two years. And this is the ground floor of morning television in yeah, Australia, isn't it? This is, is going... Good Morning Australia the first... Oh, there, there'd been a couple. The Today Show, I think, may have been on air. That was Steve Liebman. Yeah, and Kerry... Oh, God, what was her name? Oh, it doesn't matter. Sue, no, Sue someone. Yes. Um, but there had been, in, even as far back as the 60s, there had been okay. attempts at breakfast TV. Yeah. Mike Walsh did one. Um, I think Hell Todd might have done one. 
Um, so they had given it a go. But Good Morning Australia by this time was well established. It was a big hit. This is with Gordon Elliott and Carrie Ann Kennelly. Um, so this is really going back now to the, the early 80s. And they were a great combination. The show was rating really well. Uh, I knew nothing about producing a TV show. I was thrown into the deep end. So it's that old thing, you know, if, if I can fake my way through this for a few weeks, I can probably learn as quickly as possible. And, you know, it was a good gig for me and, and stood me well for eventually going on air. And it's looking after the on-air talent and massaging egos yeah. and making sure everything... It's not so different to the radio producing in terms that you are responsible for the content of the show. Uh, and in that, there is a lot more massaging of egos on TV um, just because of the nature of the beast, because you had two hosts who really didn't like each other, so you had to kind of negotiate that all the time. And, um, yeah, it's, it's different. And obviously you've got to be... You, there's a lot more people involved because you're putting a visual presentation to air. So you've got technical directors and you've got lighting people and you've got makeup and all those things. So you, in a sense, are... Uh, in some cases, um, overseeing that, and in, in some cases, just coordinating with them. And, and of course, a show like that, you've got live crosses all around Australia and overseas, so it, it's a fairly big extravaganza. Yeah. Kerry Ann and, and Gordon are great professionals. I mean, it's fascinating to hear that they didn't necessarily get on off camera, but on screen, there was this tremendous chemistry. Yeah, well, it's probably true most of the time with most TV duos. They either, in some cases, hate each other, which Gordon and Kerry Ann did, or they just don't click, you know, once the camera's off, and they just want to save whatever magic or spark there is for when they are on air. You know, Bert and Don was another example of that. Even Bert and Graham weren't really that close. They had a great, you know, connection on air. And I think they both worked on the theory that, you know, let's just save it for when we are on air. Let's not try and spoil it or try to uh, be scientific about it and work out why it works, just accept that it does and save it for when we can use it. Yeah. Whatever happened to Gordon Elliott? Oh, Gordon just went off and became a multimillionaire in America. He went to America and became... Um, uh, he got his own TV show during that time when they were doing all those, you know, shocking Jerry Springer-type shows. They tried to do a version of that with him, and it was mildly successful. But then they fired him and they paid him out so he had quite a lot of money in his pocket and he started producing tv shows and to this day he still does he got onto this woman called paula dean yeah. who is a, a cook she looks a bit like patty newton and she cooks up all this southern stuff and and um that's one of the tv shows that he's produced and, and that's where you make serious money is producing tv shows and selling them that's where you really make the big coin so what about entertainment reporting then? When, when does this start to emerge in your... Well, uh, it sort of started... Uh, uh, it's such a patchwork, isn't it? And then I went back to working with Bert again. and in radio. On radio. And that's when he started using me more and more on air and uh, eventually said, you know, you really should do this all full time and you get people to use you. So um, I did. And, you know, that became the career now for the last... 35 years or so. It's a long run, isn't yeah. it? So Bert Newton is one of your great mentors. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I, yeah. I believe Joan Rivers too. Yeah, well, that was a funny one. She became a great friend and mentor, um, mainly because just by sheer luck, um, I wrote to her. She, Her husband had died. I'd been following all of that. And then she came to Australia. Her first gig after her husband Edgar died was working at the Hilton Hotel in Melbourne. She couldn't get a gig anywhere. No one wanted to employ her because... Uh, Everyone said, oh, no one's going to laugh at a widow up on stage right. doing jokes. And she got the gig at the Hilton Hotel. And I wrote her a note and said, uh, oh, I'm a big fan of yours. And if you need anyone to show you around Melbourne while you're here, I know everything. So um, sh within an hour, I got a phone call. Uh, this would probably, well, I probably had a mobile phone, I forget. But either way, I got a phone call from her assistant saying, um, oh, Joan's got your letter. And when can you come in and start? And... <laughs> I thought, what? <laughs> I didn't actually apply for a job. So um, suddenly I spent the next week taking Joan around Melbourne and we did some day tours outside of Melbourne. We went to um, Phillip Island and we, they used to have this worm down at Phillip Island. You could walk through this worm 
and she loved it. And oddly enough, just about 12 months ago, I was in Los Angeles and I was doing the morning show from the LA studio. And who should walk in but Melissa Rivers, Joan's daughter. And uh, I never met her. And I said to her, oh, look, I knew your mum. And, um, and she said, I said, I'm from Melbourne. She said, are you Peter from Melbourne? And she said, did you take her to that worm? She never stopped talking about the worm. So, I mean, I thought it was a pretty average thing, but it hit a note with her. And so that was a funny connection. But yeah, Joan was remarkable. And Joan was very big on writing notes and cards and letters, which is one thing I kind of picked up from her on. I'm very big on that. Uh, I obviously email, but I prefer to write letters and notes to people. And she was right into that. And I've got a whole collection of them at home. She wrote beautifully. She was a very interesting woman. She was a very clever woman. Very, very well read. She was not like the Joan Rivers you saw on TV and, and radio. Uh, she was very different. Um, she could turn it on and off very mm. quickly. But she um, was very astute. And she was a very good businesswoman. And she really wanted to be an actress. That's what she wanted to be. She didn't. She created this persona of Joan Rivers, who, and she was good at doing it. But it was almost to her like playing a character, yeah. and that's what she made a lot of money out of. So she wasn't going to walk away from it. But I think deep down, she always wanted to be a, a serious actress. She was perhaps a, a colleague on the red carpet too when you were. Yeah, many times. Yeah, many a couple of times, like literally shoulder to shoulder, and sometimes when. Um, when you're doing those red carpet things, uh, you can get dead patches when there's no one there. So uh, she'd turn to me and say, quick, I'm going to put you on air. So she put me on E! News and I'd say, oh, Joan, no one's coming. Can you, quick, I'll put you on Channel 9. So uh, we'd help each other out with that. And, and then, you know, to hear of her passing was so, so sad because I'd spoken to her probably only about a month earlier and I was talking about going over to New York and she said, are you going to come and stay and all that stuff? And... Uh, and she, one of those things where even though she was 83, you don't expect to say gone too soon. No. But with her, you know, she was not going to slow down. You know, what she would do, um, she was still doing a gig on every Wednesday night in a little club in New York. Um, what was it called? The Sewing Machine or something, some little club seated like 100 people. And she only charged 10, 15 bucks. And she'd do it because she wanted to try out new material. And so she'd record that show. And then the next morning, she'd fly to New York to do the fashion police or whatever thing she was doing. And on the plane, she would listen back to last night's show. And so that worked, that worked. So right up until the end, she was constantly, um, you know, changing her material, editing her material. And I guess almost like curating it like a museum yeah. of things that work and things that don't work, judging on what that crowd had responded to the night before. She certainly wasn't doing it for the money, but she just wanted to keep her craft at the top of the game. I don't know how she would have gone in the Trump era and now in this new era that we're in of uh, Me Too and stuff, um, which I'm not knocking for a second, but I don't know that they're open to have any humour attached to it. You know, And I think Joan may have been, had she been around, she would have been treading into some pretty interesting territory. The red carpet must be a, uh, a tough gig it's to really keep that hard. alive. And it's really hard. Because you don't know who you're going to be you able to grab. Don't. And I'm not great with names right. and faces. And so suddenly someone's standing in front of you and you think, I haven't got a clue who this person is. So um, you're hoping the audience at home knows. And most of the time you don't have a producer with you. Uh, and you can't say, who are you again? Um, you know that does happen a lot and it's very hard to keep up with everybody you know obviously all the old timers I know but some of the younger ones it's really hard and and so I did find that hard in fact I remember one time there was a great broadcaster who only died about 12, 12 months ago called Regis Philbin oh yeah fantastic. and uh, lucky as chance would have it I got sat next to him on a plane once only going from Sydney to from LA to San Francisco so it was only a short trip but I wasn't going to miss the chance to talk to him and he said the hardest gigs he'd ever done in his career, and he'd been in the game for 70-plus years, he said was the red carpet at the Oscars. It's the hardest gig because you just you do not know what's going to happen next and who's going to be there. And what they're going to be like. And what they're going to be like. Most of them are pretty good. But you can always fall back on the old, who are you wearing? And, you know, are you carrying a lucky charm? And are you going to go to the party afterwards? All that sort of cliche yeah. things that you can do. But I, I don't... I've never really found the red carpet stuff particularly 
um, um, enjoyable. Mm. Um, it, the first time is a buzz. The first time when you do the Oscars is a buzz. But after that, I found it very hollow, you know, just getting these same quotes they've given to everybody else ahead of you and they will give to everybody else after you. Some people, and I didn't think I was particularly good at it, um, but, you know, people like Angela and Richard and Nelson Aspen, who I'm a huge fan of, uh, you know, they're, they're great at it. It's just not me. I, I, I want to... Um, I've got too much to say that I, <laughs> it's yeah. basically I can't shut up and yeah. that's not a venue for it. Have you ever got a story wrong? Yeah, a couple yeah. of times. Nothing major, yeah. um, but, you know, shows that I'd been told from good sources were axed and then the next day then they decide they're not axed. And yeah, but uh, so, and it grates at you. And particularly now in, in the social media era, people will use that against you. I killed off somebody once and that was partly my fault and partly not my fault. It was, um, I can't even think of her name now, some actress from uh, Soapy, a legendary actress. But 3AW rang me and said, um, you know, uh, Vera Franakaban's dead. Can you come on air and talk about it? Now, what I would do now is say, okay, I'll come on air in 10 minutes. Let me do some research. Let me get some details. I would have soon discovered that it's not confirmed. But I said, yeah, sure, let's do it. And I went on air and did this 10-minute tribute, to her, and the woman's not dead. Uh, so, yeah, things like that, they're the stuff that you do lose sleep over. And I, I mean, I've got nothing really, really badly wrong that I thought, oh, my God, this is the end of my career. But more, I guess, they count as sort of oops moments, but, oh, God, they're horrible at the time. <laughs> your sources must be uh, very crucial to your career. Yeah. Um, as with any journalist, yeah. how do you nurture and, and build those those sources? Because I imagine they're all showbiz insiders, or yeah, and it's all anonymous information. Well, you're lucky when you've been around a long time. You kind of know a lot of people personally, and a lot of people um, who I've worked with, so you know them personally. A lot of people who I've given jobs to back in the days when I, you know, was employing people for radio and TV. You know, so you have a connection with them. Not to say they owe you, but you have a, an in with a lot of people. Uh, so I, I'm lucky in that I can, you know, I can ring people direct. I don't have, I don't need to engage too much with publicity departments. Yeah. I can bypass them. They don't like it, of course, yeah. but I can bypass them. But ultimately, people have got to trust you. No one's going to give you anything if they think you're going to blab as there's the source. Mm-hmm. Often because. You know, I've become within a circle well-known. People will come to me with stories too now, which is great, makes life easy, Mm. Uh, and say, you know, can you announce this? And often they want publicity. Sometimes they want revenge for some reason. Uh, Sometimes there is a hidden agenda. You've got to be conscious of that. But it's, yeah, there's a lot of days I get calls of people saying, we're giving this to you first, and, you know, you can announce it. And, And so that's great when that happens. But that only comes with having been around, you know, and being as old as Methuselah. You know, if I was 20, you know, nobody was doing what I do at 20 years old. No one's going to be ringing me, giving me sources, giving me hot tips at that point. There's a whole new generation of entertainment reporters appearing on the scene, I imagine. Well, there's a lot of them. I can't keep up with them. But, you know, good luck to them. And and some of them are terrific. Some of them are young and and they look fabulous on air and they're sexy and, and... they're full of enthusiasm, um, but not a lot of them have got any depth and they don't last long. Mm. Um, and so they end up coming back to, you know, old war horses like me. <laughs> so dust him off, get him back on, uh, get him out of the crypt. Uh, so I think, uh, and particularly 10, 15 years ago, when suddenly the whole online thing really exploded, uh, where there was a lot of information available, there were a lot of people who maybe didn't have much happening in their careers, thought, I'm going to become an entertainment reporter. Yeah. And so and all they were really doing was just pillaging the internet and, the, and yeah. just and doing that. And that doesn't work. It works for a while. And a lot of them work really cheap, you know. So um, that's very attractive, of course, to producers as well. But, you know, the old, old war horses like me and a, f- a few of the others just keep on going because there is a depth of knowledge there. Yeah. And also, as you get older, you get braver and you think, you know, I'm just going to say it and t- call it for what it is and I don't care about the, the blowback. I'm too old to, mm. to worry anymore. And I, also, I don't, I'm not one of these, I never have been somebody who 
has desperately wanted to be on the opening night list and and wanted the free graft and stuff sent to me. I, I don't do any of that. Um, you know, I don't really even go to opening nights anymore. So I'd rather go in season. And most of the time, I'm happy to pay for a, a ticket. So I'm a bit different to most of the others. The motive, and also I'm not fame. I'm not a fame whore. A lot of these people want to be celebrities themselves, and and that's just not what I do. Mm. Is there a book in you? Because it's a phenomenal career. You've well, met lots of interesting people. Well, thank you. Yes. The, well, uh, there probably is a book. The problem is a lot of it would not get legaled. Right. Of um, yeah. uh, I, someone said, oh, why don't you do with fake names and stuff? But that's not me. You know, I've very, very, very rarely done blind items where you report a story, but you don't name the names. That's just not... Shit, what time is it? Oh, it's quarter past ten. <gasps> Unfortunately, as you've just heard, we forgot to set an alarm and Pete scuttled to the phone to make his next broadcast appointment. I hope you're enjoying the discussion. We're keeping it live here on the Stages podcast, where my guest today is entertainment reporter Peter Ford. He returned to the mic and was most apologetic. Well, that was exciting. Live... uh Live crosses. Well, you know, I, I never... We got so carried away, talking about me, talking about me, uh, that I missed a radio cross, which I never do. I am so... I'm, one thing I am is very, very professional, and I always meet commitments. And But I do about... Once every five years, something like that will happen, where for some reason or other, uh, you know, I don't miss... You know, I'm like Ethel Merman. I don't miss a show. Yeah. Well, I sat here the day my mother died, right. and... I, the day my father died before I went to his funeral, I sat here and worked. I, I work all the time. I don't ever miss anything. But I did miss that cross to Perth. But they were very forgiving and we did it on a five-minute delay. Yeah, your day must be punctuated with all sorts it of is. I, it, moments. Uh, it is. It's, I, Wednesdays today actually is one of the quieter days. Um, but, yeah, I have to keep organised. Otherwise, it would just be a complete mess. Not so much now because I'm not doing as many crosses into the country areas so I haven't got as many to do but when I was doing all those you know it was like every 10-15 minutes was a new thing I had to be doing so uh, I had to have it like a you know everything had to be very regimented right well we know that we don't uh, we won't be looking forward to a book no did I finish my detail you explained that quite well well. and also there's not much money in it you know the money really I guess in 15, 20 years' time, I'm sitting in a nursing home with no income. I think, oh, you know, I wouldn't mind that 40 grand now. But it's not mega bucks. And really, do I want to be sitting in Dimmicks and Southland hoping someone's going to turn up asking me to sign their book? I don't think I do. And I wouldn't... No, and I have got a terrible memory as well. There's so much stuff I've forgotten. So, no, there won't be a book. And people can always read you on Twitter. Yes. You see the worst of me on Twitter, unfortunately. (laughs) Well, we've seen the best of you in this past hour, Pete, and um, I so appreciate this this time. Oh, that's my pleasure. Thank you. And you do a wonderful podcast. I, one of the reasons why I said, yes, I'll do this, after having come up with some very bad excuses to say no to you in the past, is you, your podcast is always sounds so crisp and clean and professional. Some of them I listen to, they sound like they're doing it in the toilet. You know, it just sounds horrible. So, yes, um, one of these every five or so years I will do, and yours was the one that I've bestowed my honour and grace upon today. Thank you. Thank you. And there you go. I hope this conversation with Peter gave you more insight into the world of show business journalism, and you were entertained by Peter's engaging anecdote and story. Thank you, Pete, for giving Stages this conversation. We very much appreciate it. You've been listening to Stages with Peter Ives, the podcast that talks to creatives about craft, career and what matters to them. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Wooshka, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you next time.